We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Celebrating Women in Translation Month, we have Flames by Tsushima Yuko today. Coming up, Codex Cantina. Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I'm flaming the fires crypto. And if you are new around here, we take some of the most important literature that has influenced even today's writers. If you're down for a conversational approach to literature, hit that subscribe button to join us. And as always, we start off with publication information. Flames was published in 1979 in the literary magazine Gunzo, but it's worth noting that from 1978 to 1979, there were 12 short stories that were collected into the novel called Territory of Light. And our version was translated by Geraldine Harcourt. And I had to kind of do a double take on the year that this was published. I would have guessed that this was easily published in like the 2000s. I was also a little bit baffled by that. I didn't realize it was as old as it was. I thought it was much more modern. Now, what we're doing is working through the Penguin Book of Japanese short stories, of which this was presented to. To us. It's kind of interesting that this is an excerpt, but it was released as a short story meant to be independent. I think we need to talk a little bit about that, about how this story sits independently and maybe where uh, we might need to read the novel to get a bigger picture of things. But Tsushima was born Satoko Tsushima in 1947, and she adopted the pen name of Yuko in part because the Japanese character meant happiness. It was a concept with which Tsushima had a complicated relationship, as this is an author who has been quoted as saying, I have never written about happy women in the Chicago Tribune in 1989. I think she still hasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she is the daughter of Osamu Dazai, who is a very famous Japanese writer. Uh, He's written the No Longer, No More Human, No Longer Human, uh, Setting Sun. He, He has a couple of really famous ones. But it's it's kind of like running in the family where their novels are what they call I novels where it's kind of the predecessor to the autofiction, where there's elements of their real life, of themselves almost being in the story, but then it's it's flirted and mixed around with a lot of like nonfiction elements to it. So it's not quite fiction, it's quite, not quite nonfiction, and they call it an I-novel, where it tends to be very confessional. When I think about this story of the I-novel, right, How do people learn about being parents from their own parents? But there's also a lot of other influences of stories and movies and other media. And when those are portrayed, they don't give you all of the mundane of life. They don't give you all the bad parts of life. They don't give you all the happy parts of life. They give you the extremes of super happiness or super sadness. And in this story, we're kind of getting just the average day. We're getting the mundane, so to speak. And that's something that is most of life. And that's something you have to learn to deal with in order to be a parent. Let's do a quick plot recap so that we're all on the same page. And then we'll jump into our discussion and analysis. Sounds good. So in a first person narration, our narrator works at a local library. 
she lives in an older part of town and sees death everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. First, it was the flower shop owner. Then it was a house near her daughter's daycare. Then her boss at the library. And then the new boss, Suzui, brings a letter of condolences to the narrator, writes their names in it, and then kind of hands it over to, to offer their condolences. The narrator reveals that she's asked for a divorce from her husband three times. And at the same time, she is working through something and is sending her daughter away at nights for quote-unquote breathing room as she'll still have fits at night. Soon, our narrator contracts a 102 degrees fever and sends the daughter away once again. Instead of being excited to go to Michan's, the daughter offers instead to stay with the mother. And the narrator falls Aww. asleep as the daughter takes care of her, puts the rag on her, and then falls asleep on her quilt. The three-year-old daughter soon becomes sick as well and runs a 104-degree temperature, and then which the narrator cares for the daughter. They go to the doctor. They get some medicine. Soon the daughter has a moment where she starts to suck on cloth at night and begins to talk about the narrator's breasts and whether she can once again have milk. The narrator has a dream where her primary classmates had grown up, and suddenly she exposed her breasts and was shamed. One of her classmates escorted her in the dream to a bathroom to change in privacy. In reality, her husband Fujino calls, exhausted and wants to complete the divorce. He tells her he can have custody of their daughter, as he wouldn't do anything for her. The narrator is hesitant to accept the divorce, even though it is what she wanted. Later one night, they are woken by an explosion. A chemical factory has exploded, and she realizes she's never spared approaching death, I thought. That's, that ends heavy, right? It, it, it's kind of just going through these pretty serious topics and then boom, bombshell at the end. You know, and earlier I mentioned how the narrator had a really interesting interview with the Chicago Tribune in 1989. I, I think this helps illuminate maybe a little bit from where the author writes from. But she wrote, I have never written about happy women. This is not because I like unhappiness, but it comes from my firm belief that misfortune is not always bad. Happiness can spoil people. Happy people can lose sensitivity, and as a result, they become poor in terms of human qualities. On the contrary, people can become rich by unhappiness. Unhappy people are given a chance to discover true human nature. It's like we realize a stone only after we stumble over it. I know it's hard, but people can grow through hardships. And I think that says a lot about maybe her worldview of how that that concept of striving for more and maybe you're not in a good place now, but that might harden you, that might push you to become a better person is something that I felt kind of maybe the character in this short story novel struggles with. So she defines herself by misery and not happiness or death, I should say more specifically. Well, maybe she propels off of it is even another way to say it too, right? Yeah. So who is this narrator, right? We get this info from the Michan's parents that they wanted her daughter so that she could have some breathing space. You know, what, what pops into your head? Because, well, one, you have to remember Japan's a much more trusting, much more safe environment that, you know, sending your kid off with someone is actually not as big of a deal there. It's probably changing through time. Like, I mean, this was written in 1979, right? But I don't think you're meant to take alarm from that. Instead, you're supposed to wonder, 
the neighbor sees something going on with the mom and wants to help, wants to shield the child might be one way to interpret it. How did you take that? At first, I thought kind of abandonment, but really, I think maybe the mom just needs a break like all of us do. She's a single mom and she needs some time, alone time. She needs some me time. And she's trying to take care of her daughter alone, and this allows her that opportunity. And I could kind of see that as, you know, my mom and dad need to go off and do something. And they're like, hey, why don't you go play with your friend over here so we can have our time? And I I didn't think too, you know, negatively about it. Yeah, I could see that for sure. And we even saw later on how Fujino has just like been gone for a long period of time and they're still trying to compete this this separation. I guess if you read the rest of the novel, there's some backfilled information about Fujino's character where maybe he deserves some of this neglect, if you will. But you can see that, to your point, she's raising this child all on her own and is probably having a rough time with it. I I don't have children, but I can only imagine having a three-year-old and being responsible for 100% of their care, their food, their nurturing, and all of that. That's got to be daunting, and then try to work and everything on top of it and try to take care of myself so that I can provide for this other life. That's a lot, and it's kind of interesting that you say that in nowadays maybe we wouldn't be able to do that, but I think even in our culture here in the U.S. in 1979 – or even growing up in the 80s, it was common to where we would all go over to someone else's house and stay and allow maybe that one set of parents to have their free time away from everybody, you know, bombarding that one house. But man, by yourself, that's got to be that's got to be tough. Well, think of it this way, too. When I get frustrated with my son being married, who do I complain to? I complain to my wife, right? When my wife has a tough day at work, Who does she complain to? She doesn't complain to my son. She complains to me. Now, if you are separated in a sense, like the divorce isn't final at this point in time, who does the wife go to with these struggles, right? In Japan, particularly in 1979, much more patriarchal than even America or even Japan of current day, that it's a lot harder to be a single mother, I suspect. But who does she turn to? when all she has is this three-year-old child. She has no one. So she's kind of having to put on that tough face. And you have quotes from this where she says, I wanted her to think everything was fine, and my daughter and I were positively blooming. My attitude to my mother was like my attitude to Fagino. So in a sense, even her own family, her, her mother, she's getting cut off from her as well to the point where she can't have these moments of an expression. It's probably building up and eating away at her inside, not having any type of an outlet. There's two things there. Do you think that this is the typical relationship that many parents have with their children? And two, the mom is being a good mom. Like she's shielding her daughter from her own suffering to make sure that her daughter is having a better, happier life, even though she's defining a little bit of her own life by unhappiness. Well, and isn't it easy to put the martyr or the person who goes through suffering up on a pedestal, right? Sure. And I think, I think the author here is even articulating a little bit of that of, Why do I struggle to do this? Why do I struggle to put up with these things? We have a quote from an interview with her where she says, A divorced mother chooses to be a good mother not only to gain social recognition, but also to be appreciated by her own children for not having abandoned them. I think children are a heavy burden for divorced women. And even though the focus was on that second part, you know, for the children to make sure that they know that someone loves them and that she's there for them, 
we just kind of glossed over real quick that first part. A divorced mother chooses to be a good mother not only to gain social recognition. So part of why she's in, it's it's like this confessional moment of I'm admitting that sometimes I'm trying to be the good mother because that's what everyone else expects me to be. And I'm not. I'm putting on a show. It's fake sometimes to a, to a, uh, an extent of having to pretend to be this loving and caring person 100% of the time and not have any type of an outlet while doing it while being a divorced woman. And she's emulating what she has seen too. And in your previous quote that she is, her attitude is like it was basically her mother was to her, she felt like. So this is almost like a vicious cycle from generation to generation. Well, it's like, how do you, how do you return to that healthy state too? Can you return to that healthy state? You know, you had some good question. You had some really interesting commentary here, actually from multiple angles, right? The most obvious, right? Straight out in front of you is the child's conversation with the, you know, sucking on the nipple and the potential to, you know, produce milk again. I can't produce milk again, like biologically, like I just, it, it doesn't come back. Once you're done with nursing, the female body is done with nursing, you know, as far as I'm aware, maybe there's a medical time where, where that's not true. But I think by whole and large, once you leave that state, you can't go back to it, right? And it's the same thing with this child, like, can I be a baby again, basically? My son asks me that all the time. Like, like, I want to be a little baby. And I'm like, no, you're five. You're not a baby anymore. <laughs> right. And, and I don't know why he has that desire, but it pops up all the time. Right. And I think it's that, that loss of something that you can never return to. And I think that's the only way for me in the context of a short story. I don't know, you know, if, if, if this whole novel has more commentary on it. But that death thing felt so weird to be so prominent in the beginning and then disappear except for that final ending. The only way I can kind of assign value to that, I think, is thinking about it being a state you can't return from, right? There's this commentary about the the daughter not being able to return to a state of innocence and being a child again. The mother can't care for her in the way of nur- you know nursing the, the way that she once did. And once you're dead, you can't return from that. So... I, I think these people are even maybe struggling with those. You're never going to get back to that healthy state again. We got to figure out how to make this work the way it is today. A lot of loss through this story, the loss of life, the loss of innocence, the loss of the marriage, loss, 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 loss through all of this. And that's how some people define themselves is through their loss, but they keep persevering and struggling and moving forward. You know what I would love to see a little bit more of is that husband in the rest of these short stories slash collected novel, if you will, because if he truly deserves it, so let's, so go out on the ledge with me. Okay. That this is a bad person and he's deserved to be separated from. Okay. So let's just say that's a given. Is he not totally gaslighting her when he's just like, yeah, this separation is what you wanted, right? This is what you needed. And she's like, I don't know. Is this what I wanted? And he's like, that's what you said. Like, he's kind of like leading her towards this, like, you wanted the separation. Even though it was him that was potentially the bad guy, this is pretty pretty manipulative of, of a thing for a guy to do. And the fact that he also says, well, I can't provide for the kid anyway. You're doing fine without me, so I'll just go on my merry way and you'll be great no matter what I do, so let's just get the divorce. <laughs> it, it, again, with a little bit of speculation, but definitely pretty easy to paint that very negative picture of the husband. And I think the I novel was such an 
interesting way and best way perhaps to convey the scenario that totally truthful exploration of having to fit into your expectations as a mother when you're like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do this. And it's hard sometimes. And sometimes you want to give up and you can't. But at the same time, there's those moments that you have with your child that it just provides you with such energy and you realize this is what you want. But filling that role 100% of the time is stressful. It's It sometimes can't be done. And sometimes you're worried about causing this harm and putting yourself and your daughter in a state that you're not sure you're ever going to be able to return to. And I don't think if you tried to create it as purely fiction, if it would be felt by the reader in the same way that it does in this format with it being kind of like a part confessional from the from the author. Yeah, kind of like we've said before, this I novel is so interesting of how this whole story is really character development, but there isn't a lot of character development. We don't know a lot about the child. We don't know a lot about the narrator. We don't know a lot about the neighbors. We don't know a lot about the husband. All of these characters, and we're still kind of guessing wishy-washy here, and I think that really to enjoy this, you kind of need the entirety of the novel, right? I mean, we have so little to go on. My feelings are, so moving into our subjective wrap-up and ratings here, and again, we'll leave a, a Yuko playlist down below for future short stories if we pick up this novel. But my feelings of this are very conflicted where I, I actually really enjoyed the writing. I, I loved I loved the experience of it. But when I'm done and I look at like I feel incomplete with like all those like death comments and the the wrapping and structure of this together weren't I guess weren't what I what is used to. I, I don't know if I hold that against it, but something felt a little off with, with how it was structured. Um I think, you know, you've, you've, you've asked this question before, and I've been thinking about that with the story. You sometimes ask me, who's this story for, right? Like, what, what type of person am I writing this story for? And the only answer I can come at that makes sense with this story is the author. She wrote it for herself. She wrote it to make sense of these feelings that she's, she's having. And I think if someone else can see the window or see, you know, maybe just a little bit of empathy with people in that situation... I, I think that's a, a bonus, right? I think she wrote this for herself is the best way to describe it. So, you know, maybe my feelings about it not being structured the way I want don't matter. Maybe it was structured the way the author needed it to. That makes sense. I like that. Yeah, I, I struggle giving a number to this one because I feel like it's not fair. Uh, I didn't enjoy it. So giving it a number is just going to add more to the negativity. And I don't want to do that. Based on kind of what you said, I feel like that this story is a stream of consciousness and it it doesn't have a purpose like the other stream of consciousnesses stories that we've read so far and this one it, it was all more. over the place it needs more right it needs more i i'm on death and then i'm on breastfeeding and then i'm on divorce and then i'm over here and i realize i'm going through this story with this lady's struggles but it's not for me and I always want to try to get something out of reading to understand a culture or a people's or a person or a race or a religion or a something. And there isn't that in this story. And I struggle with that. And again, I'm supposed to reflect upon this, but how can I when it's not for me? Well, it's a, it's a universal struggle. I, I enjoyed it, but at the same time, I want, like, like, am I docking it for wanting more? Like, we know <laughs> this is part of a not, like, Unfortunately, we came to this through a short story collection. It's presented to us as a standalone. 
isn't it kind of a good thing that I want more? I, I guess it sounds like you don't, but I want to know more. And that's my problem is without that other part, I'm kind of like, I don't know how to make up my mind about it is how I feel. The historian in me just, I need context. I need body paragraphs. I need a conclusion. I need a thesis. And uh, a lot of traditional short stories will give you that, and this does not. And that's why I think it's kind of unfair to give us our, you know, this is my number. <laughs> that's, yeah, just, that, yeah. that's not going to happen. Uh, I wouldn't be opposed to reading more of the stories so I can get some more of that and then maybe say, hey, these three stories together are a really good read. And these are the numbers we would assign to you know, X, Y, and Z stories in conjunction with Flames. Right. And, and, and we have no idea if the other stories provide that context or if they're all kind of like these little small confessional vignettes. <laughs> we don't know. So I don't know, guys. If you're looking to explore some more literature, you know, make sure you hit that subscribe button. You can hear us talking about lots of other stuff. We post videos every Monday and Thursday. Peace. Peace out.